I want to ask those uh, now, those of you, to join me in prayer. If you will kneel with me, and uh, we'll come before the, the Lord together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for this most holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunities that we have to learn of Jesus and and to learn the truth, uh, the gospel, and this opportunity to come together and worship you from our hearts. We pray that you will send angels that, uh, that are from heaven, angels that excel in strength to be with each and every one of the saints, especially today. And may we truly have that rest that is in Jesus and the physical rest and uh, from our labors and, and be blessed as you've promised because, Father, we really need your blessings. We thank you so much for Jesus and his life of righteousness that he was willing, more than willing, uh, to give of himself to come and become like one of us for all eternity. Uh, to walk a life of righteousness being tempted just as we are, yet overcoming every temptation as our example. So we pray, Lord, that that we may look up to that example and we may, through the power that's given to us through your promises and, and through the Holy Spirit, that we too may, day by day, live by that example. We thank you for the many blessings that you pour out upon us that sustains us, uh, that uh, you water uh, the seeds that we plant, and you you hear our prayers, and you answer our prayers. We're so thankful that you've answered the prayer for, for Bertha, that the surgery went very well, and we pray that you'll continue to bless her in her recovery. And, and Lord, bless her with uh, the finances that is needed uh, to take care of these medical expenses. And you've seen the many and heard the many prayer requests this morning. Susan's cousin Kim, who's going through divorce, divorce, such a terrible thing. It was never your intentions at all. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that you'll be very near to her. May they be led to Jesus. Uh, be with Susan as uh, she has this ailment in her shoulder. It's hard to do ministry work or any kind of work when you're constantly in pain. And uh, Lord, we pray for uh, uh, all of our children's parents and for our children, the youth, families, and marriages. Uh, they're under attack, been under attack for many, many years. And, and we've seen, Lord, just recently where uh, there's going to be a push to um, have churches do uh, gay weddings under threat of lawsuits. And we pray, Lord, that we may have courage to stand for the truth. And be compassionate towards all. For we all have sinned, Lord. We know what it's like. We pray that you will be with us this morning. You bless the reading of your word. That hearts will be open to the truth. And that we may understand this principle that your word teaches. And Father, that we may come to a right understanding. And may we all... 
keep our eyes lifted up to Jesus. Please forgive us, Lord, where we failed. Forgive us our sins. And bless us now as you've promised. Not because we're worthy, but Jesus is. And we ask this in His blessed name. Amen. I also remember Christopher in our prayers. He's seeking... Uh, he's searching. He's searching for truth, but he's also, you know, you need the, you need the jobs, you need a place, you need those things. So let's remember uh, Christopher as well. Uh, this is part two of a message that uh, in study I've entitled "In One Accord," which we began a couple of Sabbaths ago. In part one, we began looking at an important uh, biblical principle that is too often, I think in my experience anyway, discarded, or it's misunderstood, or it is even misapplied. And this principle is often referred to, as I mentioned earlier, as corporate accountability or corporate responsibility. This principle of corporate accountability, uh, friends, I believe is at the very core of the great controversy. This principle has everything to do, really, also with unity, being of one accord with God and each of His people. And the fact that God holds you accountable, and not only for your own individual actions, but also for the actions and behavior of the group uh, or body you choose to belong to or be a part of. The scripture that I began the study with is found in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. That was our scripture reading for today. And it says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They all continued. I like that. Continued. It wasn't a one-time thing. They continued in, with one accord in prayer and supplication. Supplication to God and each other. And this brought them into one accord. Helped to actually strengthen their bond of unity. In the weeks ahead, we'll be studying aspects of church organization, and I want to put this scripture in the forefront of your mind, and, and so please continue to, to meditate, uh, meditate upon it and, and think about that in, those, in that context, see. These followers continue together with one accord in prayer and supplication. And let's understand this principle in the context of what we have learned concerning who and what the Bible declares the church to be. And remember uh, that there are only two sides in the great controversy. <laughs> the side of Christ and the side of Antichrist. Two churches, the Church of Christ and the Church of Antichrist. So there may be many organizations, in fact there are many organizations, but each one will either be in the Church of Christ or the Church of Antichrist. And we must understand, um, friends, that when we join ourselves by covenant, see, when you become a member of an organization, you're making a covenant there. When you join yourselves by covenant with an organization, you're held accountable for what that organization does. Uh, we cannot say to God that it was the leader's fault and blame others. Well, we can, but we're just as accountable. Adam did that by saying it was Eve's fault, remember? Eve said it was the serpent's fault. It is the spirit of Antichrist that lays that 
fault of personal and corporate uh, sins on others. Satan blamed God for the division that uh, he started in heaven. That Satan started in heaven. And Adam and Eve partook of that same uh, um, spirit in passing uh, the blame. And this principle is recognized throughout the scriptures. And in part one, we began looking at examples so that we were uh, clear about it. We began in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. We saw that while Abraham was in Egypt, he asked his wife Sarah to say that uh, she was his sister so that the Egyptian princes wouldn't kill him. And we found that Pharaoh was held accountable by God. And not just Pharaoh, his entire household was held accountable for that sin. Abraham was considered a guest in Egypt, you see, a friend and confederate to the country. God actually used the plagues to protect Sarah from Abraham's deceit, for they stirred uh, Pharaoh. What did he do? He had to search it out. Why am I getting these plagues? He searched it out. And of course he found out. And he went to Abraham and said, Why are you doing why did you do this to me? Why'd you lie? And God has done this quite often to wake people up to their course. Actually, you go through the scriptures. We looked at the account of Lot there in Sodom. Lot is threatened with death if he does not quickly separate from that city, that corrupt city. So even though God acknowledged Lot as just and righteous, if he would have refused to heed the command to separate. All his righteousness would not have saved him from being consumed by the fiery wrath of God's judgments. The point to be made here is that regardless of our standing with God, if we refuse to obey his command for us to separate from sinful associations, we will be destroyed along with them. We'll not be in one accord with God, but we will have been found to be in one accord with the evildoers. So, beloved, God works on principles of righteousness, and though He loves us with an everlasting love, and He does, He will not stay one righteous principle to save anyone. He can't. It's against His character. There's no grand exception with God. God will never change one jot or tittle of His righteousness in order to save anyone. I mean, the death of Jesus there at uh, Calvary proves that to be true. There would have been a change made already if it was possible. It's not. We found another example in Numbers chapter 16 with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram leading a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And even though Korah was a Levite and served in the tabernacle, he had become dissatisfied with his position, you see, and he wanted because he wanted to be a priest. His family was responsible for all the hymns and the music and the singers. That's what they were. But he wanted to be a priest. And he, along with those who followed him, had forgotten that the Lord was the head of the body. (laughs) And he did the calling and ordaining. Not man. So, it's kind of where we, we left off. We were in the middle of that. So we have this rebellion by these men and what is God's reaction? Number 16, verses 20 and 21. 
And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. God's call to Moses and Aaron was to separate from the congregation, thus to remain, what? In one accord with God. And then He's going to consume the discordant. He's going to consume them. From Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 354. Speaking about this, she says, They, that's the congregation, also were in alarming danger of being destroyed in their sins. In their sins. The sins of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who were leading out in this rebellion. She says that they were in alarming danger of being destroyed in their sins by the wrath of God, for they were sharers in the crimes of the men to whom they had given their sympathy and with whom they had associated. They were what? They were sharers in the crimes. That's an interesting thought. That's the principle there. This principle that we've been looking at. By sympathizing with and associating with these sinful men, God considered the congregation just as guilty as they were and thus subject to being destroyed. And you read on in Numbers, you go to verse 26... It says, And he, Moses, spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Now, this is in the church, isn't it? Right? This is happening in the church at that time. And God's calling for a separation here. Let me remind you of this statement. I shared it last time. Signs of the Times, November 8, 1899. Paul writes to the Romans, If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. But there is a point beyond which... Okay. There's a point to it. There's a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle. Separation then becomes an absolute duty, she says. So there's a point. We're to live peaceably with all men until it comes to a point that it's impossible to maintain harmony with them without the sacrifice of our principles, godly principles. Then we have to separate. Becomes an absolute duty, she says. And that's very strong language, but let's remember that God knows what is the best course of action in every situation. And so, let's remember that when He tells us to separate and we do not, we're going to be held accountable for that decision. Let's go back to Numbers. Number 16, verse 27. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And I'm just going to continue reading here. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents. And their wives, and their sons, and their little children. Whole families. 
So they separate away from the tents and they come out to stand in the door of the tent to see what's going on. And Moses said, this is verse 28, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. See, that was the accusation. Who do you think you are, Moses? We're all, remember last time, part one? Korah says, we're all, everybody here is a minister to God. All of Israel is. Well, he was misapplying God's words. And so Moses says, look, I wasn't doing things for my own ego. I wasn't just trying to climb the corporate ladder here in church. (laughs) God called me to do this. It wasn't from my own mind. And so he says, if these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. So basically he's saying to everyone, if Korah, Dathan, Byram, these princes, all of them, they die in their old age, you know, they die what's common, a death that's common, then that's proof that God has not sent me. And he goes on, but if the Lord make a new thing and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, and not just them, he says here, verse 30, with all that appertain unto them, It's not just them, it's their family, possessions, all of it. And they go down quick into the pit. Then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, under Korah, Dathan, Byram, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. Notice, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. Boom. Remember that Moses asked the Lord in verse 22, he said, Shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? What do you think the answer to that was? Well, we'll get to some more examples here in a few moments. You say apparently so. I say yes. God hates sin. And it's our responsibility to search it out, whether it is in us, whether it's in our families, or whether it's within the church. I'm responsible to do this, you're responsible to do this, and every one of us is responsible to do this as Jesus would. We're not to be the thought police. But something's going on if the frown of God is on the church or on your family, etc. Something's going on. And we need to search it out with diligence, with the right (laughs) spirit. Especially if we want to be in one accord with God and each other. Our attitude is to rid ourselves of every sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. When someone in the family of faith is in sin, we're to have a heart of compassion. We're to have a heart of love for the erring one, but the sin has to be dealt with, doesn't it? For we're all held accountable for it. And if we have a love for each other, 
a real love for each other, we will esteem them better than ourselves. We'll reach out to them uh, to help them. No one likes to be reproved or rebuked. I don't like it. I mean, I don't know anybody who does. Please rebuke me. Please reprove me. You know. But it's necessary at times for we are all held accountable to each other and to God. And we read in the Word that if we're rebuked or reproved by God, it's because He loves us. He wants to make corrections. His parents want to correct their children so that they learn to live righteously. From the book Upward Look, page 206. Arduous and unpleasant duties have to be performed. None are to place themselves where they will sanction wrong by silence. They aid and abet the schemes of the enemy by keeping their lips closed when they should speak decidedly. Sometimes it's unpleasant, but it has to be done. Let's go back to verse 27 again for a moment there. It said, So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan and Byram on every side, and Dathan and Byram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children, it said. What is little known, I think, at least in my experience I found this, um, is that not all the family members were destroyed in this rebellion. For there were those who would not go along with Korah from his own family. In fact, later on under David's reign... The, the Korahites were well spoken of. Well, that wasn't Korah that was well spoken of. It had to be some of his offspring. So if you go to Numbers 26, verses 9 to 11, it says, this is that Dathan and Abiram, this is what they're speaking of, this whole situation here, it says, which were famous in the congregation, who strove against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they strove against the Lord. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When that company died, what time the fire devoured 250 men, they became a sign. Look at verse 11. Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. Why weren't they destroyed too? Simply because as difficult as it must have been for them to tear away from the rest of their family, they chose to follow God's mandate to separate. And in doing so, they preserved their lives. They preserved their um, their witness. They preserved the family line. But they chose to separate from those who were not in accord with God. And so, sometimes in our walk, there will be people within our own family that make decisions that uh, um, separate themselves from God. And when it reaches a certain point where you have to quit associating with family, there's a big decision, isn't there? Now, with each person, each family, it's going to be it's going to be different. And the timing and such, you need to be led by God. But when God says, "Hey, you need to separate," whether they're family or not, you need to obey God. Amen. So Jesus said, if you love father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love children more than me, you're not worthy of me, etc. 
Let's go to another example. It's found in the story of Jericho. And this is probably is probably the most uh, uh, well-known example of corporate accountability. Israel was going into the promised land and the, the first city to be driven out from the promised land was Jericho. And God gave instructions to Israel uh, concerning the overthrow of Jericho, concerning its destruction. You know, you've heard the saying, I think it, you know most people have heard the saying, to the victor goes the spoils, right? Have you ever heard that? God was the victor and he was laying out the, the law concerning the spoils. See? We go to Joshua chapter 6 and look at verses 18 and 19. And notice here, this was the instruction from the Lord. Verse 18, And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When you take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and trouble it, but all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. You see, God had warned Israel regarding the destruction of Jericho, but there was one man, we find, who disobeyed the Lord's command to the congregation. If you turn and go on down to chapter 7, look at verse 1. Joshua 7 and verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass. Who did? Are they really the ones who did it? (laughs) But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Who was the anger of the Lord kindled against? Was it just Achan? He's the one who did it. No, friends. The sin of Achan rested upon the entire congregation, rested upon all the children of Israel. They were no longer in one accord with God or with each other. And I'll tell you, as a result of Achan's sin, and not just that, but that was a major part of it, as a result of Achan's sin, 36 men lost their lives when the Israelites attacked Ai. You read in uh, uh, verse 5. And the men of Ai smote of them about 30 and 6 men, it says. So even though Achan acted alone, all of Israel was guilty of disobedience in the eyes of God. Let's go to verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Now why was Joshua lying upon his face, do you think? God had delivered Jericho, so they made plans, we're going to go and attack Ai. But the thing is, they didn't really consult God about attacking Ai. The presumption was, well, God delivered Jericho. He's told us to to drive out all the the heathens, everyone out of the promised land because it's an inheritance to God's people. And so the presumption was, we're going to carry it out step by step. We're going to make our own plans to do this. God has given us a mission, a charge. They left God out of the council. 
And not just that, you have a man who's disobeyed the direct commands of God, who's stolen of the spoils, hid them, and so God's frown is upon all Israel. And so here's Joshua. He doesn't understand. He's appalled at what's happened. He's heartbroken. He goes to God. He rips his robe. Prostrates before God. And God comes to him and says, Get up! Why are you lying down there on your face? Israel hath sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. You see that? You break the covenant with God when you... You see, this was the covenant they had made. For they have even taken of the accursed thing and have also stolen and dissembled also and they have put it even among their own stuff. Now let me ask you a question to think about here. Did these 36 men die there at the battle of Ai because of their sinfulness or disobedience? No, they died because Achan, along with them, were part of the same corporate body, all members of Israel. You see, the guilt was attributed to all Israel. God was not to be charged, see? And this is the key, friends. God was not to be charged with the humiliating defeat. He had not deserted them. They had disobeyed. Remember, go back to the garden. We saw that again. Adam blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. In doing so, they actually were blaming God. Had God continued to fight for His people against Ai, He would have been sanctioning sin. He would have been encouraging its continuance. Speaking about this, look at Patriarchs and Prophets. Pages 494 and on. She says, God's command had been disregarded by one of those appointed to execute His judgments. And the nation was held accountable for the guilt of the transgressor. Achan's sin brought disaster upon the whole nation. Notice she says, For one man's sin, the displeasure of God will rest upon his church till a transgression is searched out and put away. That's a strong statement to consider. For one man's sin, the displeasure of God will rest upon his church till the transgression is searched out and put away. That's pretty pretty deep. What happened to Achan? What happened to Achan and all that was associated with him? You know, if you continue to read through uh, chapter 7, you get to see exactly there's a procedure. And I, and I've, I think I've spoken on this before. How do you deal with sin in the church? And, and this is one of the examples of the procedures that you go through. Joshua went through and they, they started with the nation. They got it narrowed down. They started searching these things out, see? And it came to the tribe of Judah. It was found. You think that Achan was the only one who knew that he had taken that stuff? He buried it in his tent. You think his wife knew? You think his children knew? There were others who knew. 
You think his neighbors knew? Yeah. Because they were not just neighbors, they were family too. So he starts methodically to, ch- to, to, to search this out, Joshua does. He brings the leaders in. And it gets narrower and narrower as he's searching it out. It goes to the tribe of Judah, it goes to this family line, and eventually it's to the tent of Achan. Do you think that Achan had every opportunity to confess his sin and make it right? But did he do that? It's just like Lucifer in heaven. He had an opportunity to repent from his ways, but he he was just sorry he got caught. <laughs> it's not real repentance. And so what happened to Achan and all that were associated with him? Look at Joshua 7, verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent. It's everything, isn't it? In fact, it says, and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and burned them with fire, and after they had stoned them with stones. So they stoned him to death, then they burned him to ashes. With all their stuff. Including the gold, it was misused. It was tainted, see? Everything. Back to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 495. As the people had been held responsible for Achan's sin and had suffered from its consequence, they were, through their representatives, to take part in its punishment. All Israel stoned him with stones, she quotes. Now, probably not all actually cast stones, okay? But all were present as spectators and they were, like Paul there, you find in Acts 8.1 with Stephen, consenting unto his death. Achan and his family were first stoned to death and afterward their bodies together with the spoil and other things pertaining to them, they were burned. They acted in unity, see, and of one accord in dealing with the sin and the punishment. Israel did. And this actually goes right in step with the principles of, of uh, reconciliation, disfellowship, you'll find there that's laid out in Matthew chapter 18. Corporate accountability, corporate responsibility. Another example of this is the case of Jeremiah, who had prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon because God's people had sunk deep into you know, apostasy, into idolatry. Of course, the leadership didn't want to hear this. They didn't want to hear this prediction against God's chosen people. And their reaction to his message is found in Jeremiah 26. You look at verse 11. It says, Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city. What? 
He'd spoken against the church. How dare he say the church has fallen? How dare he say the church is in apostasy? How dare he say the church is Babylon? This man is worthy to die. For he's prophesied against this city as you have heard with your ears. What was Jeremiah's response? If you move on down to verse 15, Jeremiah says, But know ye for certain that if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and, he says, upon this city and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. And so, not only would the church leaders be held accountable for his death, but all the inhabitants of that city as well. Think about it this way. A whole nation is held accountable for the words and acts of its ambassador. At least it used to be. (laughs) If he should insult another nation, the whole nation is held accountable until such a time that it's corrected, that reparations are made. And so in like manner, offenders in a church may hinder the divine blessing upon that church. And if the church fails to take appropriate action when sin is known or even unknown, as we saw there in in Joshua, but there are people who know, friends. We're not talking about secret sins here. But if the church doesn't take appropriate action, it then becomes a partaker in that sin. Notice this Review and Herald article entitled The Laodicean Church, September 30th, 1873. If God abhors one sin above another of which his people are guilty, it is of doing nothing in a case of emergency. Indifference or neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. She says, indifference or neutrality in a religious crisis. If you look back at the examples we've looked at, you've seen that. There was indifference. Neutrality. We find that people don't want to be involved. There's sin in the church. Oh, well, you know, I'm okay. Let's look at a significant example of this principle of corporate accountability found in the book of Acts. You know, people say, well, Pastor Joel, that was all the Old Testament. You know, that was the theocracy. That was to the nation. No, this principle is throughout the Word of God. The occasion was the day of Pentecost when Peter was addressing the crowd of Jews assembled there. Remember, for the religious festival, men who had come from every known part of the world back to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is what Peter was saying to all them gathered there. 
Let all the house of Israel know, you crucified Jesus. He accused all of those present that were there guilty of crucifying Jesus. All the house of Israel. Yet some of those devout men had not been present at the crucifixion. But that didn't excuse them in the least bit, did it? The mere fact that they were part of the Jewish nation made them guilty before God. The fact that they were corporately held accountable, even though they lived in some other country, had just gotten there. Many of them didn't even know anything about Christ. You see that in the result. What was their response? Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart because they were honest. He said, You crucified the Messiah. They weren't indifferent. They weren't neutral about it. Well, some of them were, because there always are. It says they were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we correct this? Then Peter said unto them, repent. <laughs> Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this, from what? Untoward generation. The only solution Peter had to offer these men was for them to repent, to be baptized, and sever completely their connection with the Jewish faith, that untoward generation from that nation. They had created a new organization. <laughs> See? And Peter's saying, you have to repent and come back to God. And be one accord with Him. Only clear and marked separation from the apostasy would free them from the corporate guilt under which all the house of Israel stood before God. They must remove themselves in order to be in one accord with God in the church, the apostolic church. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 65. God shows us that when His people are found in sin, and it says He shows us, that's speaking God, shows us that when His people are found in sin, they should at once take decided measures to put that sin from them, that His frown may not rest upon them all, but if the sins of the people are passed over by those in responsible positions, His frown will be upon them, and the people of God as a body will be held responsible for those sins. There are people, Adventists, who say, well, yeah, we got some leaders that are... You're held accountable. Yeah. 
In his dealings with his people in the past, the Lord shows the necessity of purifying the church from wrongs. One sinner, this is amazing. I've experienced it, seen it happen, friends. One sinner may diffuse darkness that will exclude the light of God from the entire congregation. I hope that the gravity of this principle is being realized. I run into more and more people that continue to deny any culpability in staying within a fallen organization in an attempt by them, they say, to save people from the inside. I'm staying in because who else is going to reach these people? You're going to stay in when God tells you to get out? You're disobeying God. And these poor misguided souls don't realize the enormity of that kind of a decision. Because friends, there are going to be many people who say the same thing about Babylon. And they're going to partake of the plagues. And that's the last example. There are many other examples, but that's the last example that that uh, we see recorded in the Bible. It's can, contained in the most solemn messages ever given to mortal man, the three angels' messages. That's all about corporate accountability. Revelation 14, 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. Have a reverent awe. And worship Him. It's a call back to God, isn't it? Give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is in good shape. Stay in there. Keep at it. That's not what the angel's message is, is it? Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. It's emphasized again. Are you hearing me? It's fallen. Well, I'm going to stay in there because how else are these people going to be reached? It's fallen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The wine of error. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture. That means without mercy. His mercy has been removed in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment sinneth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, the beast, here's the patience of the saints. We like to skip down to that verse. Ah, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that what? They don't sin. They keep the commandments of God. 
and the faith of Jesus. And of course that's true. The character traits of the saints are summed up right here. That's the character traits of God. That's the character traits of the church. The church of Christ. These are in one accord with God and each other. They are separated from sin and apostasy. They do not receive the mark. Councils to Writers and Editors, page 11. God has placed in our hands a banner upon which is inscribed, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Notice this. She says, This is a distinct... What does distinct mean? It's not ordinary. It's not common. It's original. It's distinct. It stands out. This is a distinct separating message. A message that is to give no uncertain sound. It is to lead people away from the broken cisterns. Oh, well, yeah, leadership is, they're all wrong and whatever, but the church has gone through. <laughs> so it gets me. Those leaders are the broken cisterns and they're leading you where? You can't drink from a polluted well and get the water of life. It is to lead the people. These what is to lead the people? This the separating message of the three angels is to lead people away from the broken cisterns that contain no water to the unfailing fountain of the water of life. The three angels' messages, friends, is all about corporate accountability. It is a message that calls for a distinct separation from sin and apostasy from spiritual Babylon. Look at Revelation 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. You're not doing a good work in there. You've got to come out. That ye be not what? Partakers of her sins. What's going to happen if they stay in? Are they going to continue to be his people? Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. Not a good thing. This is the Bible has shown throughout the ages. If you don't separate yourself personally and as a people from sin, you're not in one accord with God or with His people. You'll be held accountable for being discordant. You'll suffer the consequences. Korah, Dathan, and Byram are not going to be in heaven. The priests that condemned Jeremiah are not going to be in heaven. Achan is not going to be in heaven. And Adam and Eve wouldn't be in heaven except they repented. Two 
Too many are waiting for God to supernaturally purify and cleanse their organization of sin and of sinful leaders as if all they have to do is sit there passively and tolerate all the wickedness and apostasy going on around them and God's going to bring unity. He's never worked that way before. He's not going to do it. Those who wait for God to perform a miracle will suffer the same as those who sin. For by waiting you condone the actions of those who do sin. Thus you condone disunity. You condone discord. This day with God, page 240. Many have tried neutrality in a crisis, but they have failed in their purpose. No one can maintain a neutral ground. Those who endeavor to do this will fulfill Christ's words. No man can serve two masters. They will at last be found enlisted on the enemy's side. What is it about us, friends? Many think that they are okay themselves, that they aren't responsible for what their leaders do or what other members do. As Deb said earlier, it's just too much drama. I don't want to have any of the drama. Many are deceived into thinking that they're in one accord with God because they keep His commandments. All the while, their organization is steeped in evil sin and apostasy. And that's a grave error. We're held accountable for the condition of the organization we belong to. God was held accountable in heaven and He removed the sin and sinners from there. Has anything changed? Manuscript releases. Volume 16, page 10. No one is without influence. Those those who in an effort to be neutral manifest no positive hostility toward Christ and their brethren may think that they are rendering a service to God, but such a thought is delusive. Upon the minds of those who are endeavoring to stand in a neutral position, satanic agencies are working. The first act of selfishness opens the way for the enemy's forces to enter. Our only safety is in active service for Christ Jesus. The Bible is our safeguard. But there's another part of that that she brings out here. What does she say? Our only safety is in what? Active service for Christ Jesus. Active service. Not being neutral. Active service. Not being indifferent. Many of the brethren are drunk with the wine cannot see that by refusing to believe this principle of corporate accountability they are being set up to receive the mark of the beast. They tell themselves, God, God's going to personally respect them because they're righteous. And after all, they can't do anything about the sin in their organization. Tell that to the millions of Jews who were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They too thought they were one with God and that He was going to supernaturally save them. They died because they refused to listen to the warnings of corporate responsibility, deal with the sin, or separate themselves from an apostate organization. 
And we know that not one Christian was killed during that siege because they understood this principle. They heeded the warnings. They recognized the call to come out and they obeyed. So they were saved from the consequences of inaction. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 266. If wrongs are apparent among His people, and if the servants of God pass on indifferent to them, that means you just don't care. You're indifferent to them. They virtually sustain and justify the sinner, and are alike guilty, and will just as surely receive the displeasure of God, for they will be made responsible for the sins of the guilty. Did you read that in Ezekiel 33? (laughs) We don't give a warning... The blood of that person, they die in their sins, is on our hands. Oh, friends, are you going to heed God's mandate to separate from all sin and apostasy? Or are you going to listen to the voice of man telling you, well, wait for God to act. God will take care of it. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 166-167. about to wrap this up here. There was a coming out, a decided separation from the wicked, an escape for life. So it was in the days of Noah, so with Lot, so with the disciples prior to the destruction. And I would say, so with the reformers, and so with the pioneers of the Advent movement. And she says, and so it will be in the last days. As in the days of Noah and Lot, there must be a marked separation from sin and sinners. I bolded that. A marked separation. What does that mean? A marked separation. It's not a secret, is it? It's distinct. Unfortunately, as stated before, so many Precious but deceived souls are waiting passively for God to act supernaturally and purify and clean, you know, clean up their organization. But they're acting under a great and fatal delusion. For God has given us divine instructions as to what our part should be regarding sin and apostasy. Either separate it from you, or if you can't do that, you must separate from it. It's that simple. If you don't want to be among those who will partake of the plagues, you must be one accord with God. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 676. Wrongs must be called wrongs. Grievous sins must be called by their right name. All of God's people should come nearer to Him. That's the key, isn't it? Then will they see sin in the true light and will realize how offensive it is in the sight of God. If you're indifferent to sin, if you don't stand up, you have a great distance between you and God. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more sinful you see sin is. (laughs) And as she says here, how offensive it is in the sight of God. The plain, straight testimony must live in the church or the curse of God will rest upon His people as surely as it did upon ancient Israel because of their sin. We want to be in one accord with God. 
We have to call sin by its right name. In being honest with ourselves, and in our families, and in the church. Acts 2 and verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were in one accord. One thing's for sure, friends. God will have a united people who are in one accord with Him and each other. And the question for us is whether we're going to be among them or not. And when we are in one accord with God and each other, we will receive the power of the latter rain. We'll finish the work and this great controversy will come to an end. Do you want that? All the redeemed will then be in one place, united with Christ forever. All with one accord in one place. Is that what you want? That's what I want. I hope that's what you will strive for, friends. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Study what's been brought to you about, about our responsibilities as members of the kingdom of God. Trust God to lead you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you for these principles that you clearly lay out in your word. And we pray for grace, Lord. Forgive us where we've sinned. Forgive us where we've been indifferent at times. Help us, Lord, to stand for truth, to be courageous, takes courage to stand up for what's right. We have a mighty enemy, and we can't defeat him of ourselves. So please, Lord, bless us with the Holy Spirit, bless us with angels that excel in strength to fight the good fight of faith. Let us heed your call to come out and separate from apostasy and to keep our eyes lifted upon thee. Please continue to bless us throughout this day and the days ahead that we may hasten the return of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.